Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE president. Today's conversation is with John Jenkins, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Glen Arden. The topic, learning from the black church. Today's conversation is brought to you by Christian Community Credit Union, where faith and finances come together. With mortgage rates so low, now's the time to buy or refi. Christian Community Credit Union is a purpose-driven financial partner where your money helps advance God's kingdom. Visit myccu.com slash NAE to learn more. That's myccu.com slash NAE. The credit union is an equal opportunity lender. Each account is insured up to $250,000. By member's choice, this institution is not federally insured. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Pastor John Jenkins, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Glen Arden, located outside of Washington, D.C. Under his leadership, the church has grown from 500 members to over 11,000, now one of the largest in the country. Pastor Jenkins is the chair of our NAE board, previously serving as vice chair. He also chairs the board of Project Bridges and the Skinner Institute, is the chairman emeritus for Shabbat Ministry, and serves on many other boards, including World Vision US, Denver Seminary, and Global Net. Pastor Jenkins is also a longtime pastor who provides mentorship to other pastors. His church is amazing, his leadership inspiring, and he has sought to develop dynamic disciples. It's clear that is exactly what he has done and continues to do. Thank you for joining us for this conversation, John. Excited to learn from you. Well, thank you for having me. I am absolutely honored and thrilled and grateful that you're, uh, you're having me on. So thanks for having me. Pastor Jenkins, uh, your church really is dynamic. It's generous. It has multiple outreach programs and ministries. And uh, I was personally blessed by visiting it several months ago with my wife. And as you know, I'm also a pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I have to confess, when my wife, Tony, and I visited your church, she was so overwhelmed by the presence of God and what she was experiencing that she gently leaned over to me and said, can this be my home church? <laughs> uh, and so as we begin, uh, tell us about First Baptist Church of Glen Arden and your call to ministry there. First Baptist Church of Glen Arden is 103 years old. We'll celebrate our 103rd anniversary in November. I've been honored to be the pastor there since 1989. Uh, it's my home church, actually. I grew up in the church. <clears throat> and... Uh, it's a tremendous church, tremendous people, uh, compassionate. We're located just outside of Washington, D.C., just east of D.C. And uh, we're heavily involved in serving the needs of our community. And I'm honored and proud to be the, be the senior pastor. It's a great church. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned growing up there. What's the transition like from growing up in a church to becoming its lead pastor? Yeah, I, I joke with people about that all the time, that I'm now pastoring people uh, who once taught me in Sunday school. Uh, mm. I have people in that church who have seen me grow up <clears throat> in that church. And uh, I joke with uh, one of our deacons, and uh, he used to be my Sunday school teacher, and I would tell him, 
Uh, he would tell me as a, as a kid, sit down, John Jenkins. And now in Deacon's means, I tell him to sit down. So <laughs> it's, um, it's a great loving congregation. They're tremendous people. And uh, it's an honor. Hmm. The feel of the congregation must have changed a lot. I mean, a 500-person church versus an 11,000-person church. And so you've seen it grow in uh, all these ways. Uh, has that been a challenge for you to experience you know, this transition? Yeah, uh, it still has a family feel. It is still uh, highly relational, um, and uh, people connect with each other easy. It's a loving church. Uh, you know, if you come there as a guest, uh, several people who don't even know who you are, if they've never seen you before, are going to greet you and say hello to you and welcome you to the congregation. It's a loving, compassionate uh warm church and uh even though it's large people connect people are involved in various outreach ministries and services of the church and they develop meaningful relationships that make it uh makes it makes it uh, a powerful ministry one of the transitions that uh your church has experienced is becoming a part of converge worldwide and any denomination uh Church hasn't always been a part of this uh, denomination. You actually served as vice president, executive director of national ministries at Converge. Why did your church, why did you seek to join Converge? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's a primarily Anglo organization. And I joined it for three reasons. First, firstly, um, I joined it um, because we were a part of a primarily African-American denomination and I wanted our congregation to uh, interact and experience and be involved with those who who were uh, beyond just African Americans. Uh, a lot of people in my congregation grew up during the civil rights era and so they saw and had hoses turned on them and dogs attacked. Some of them got arrested and put in jail as they marched and protested the conditions at that time. And in many of their mindsets, of, of, they're all seniors now, but in many of their mindsets, you know, all white people were demons and devils. And I wanted them to uh, not have that perception that, that all white people are demons and devils. I wanted them to know there are some, some loving, Christian, compassionate Anglos and not all following the footsteps of what they experienced growing up. So I, I joined them for that reason. I also joined Converge because they focused on helping churches instead of uh, many denominations, the focus is on the church helping the denomination. But I like that their focus was helping them, helping uh, the churches uh, instead to succeed and win. So those were two of the reasons why uh, I joined. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you touch upon an issue that is very significant in our moments, the experience that members of your church have had during the civil rights movement. And uh, right now we're in a moment uh, culturally in our country, uh, confronting yet again, the wrongful killing of black men and women, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. And it's really stirred the consciousness of our country and it feels like it's started in a way that is different than before. In your estimation, what's going on right now? 
Yeah, that's a great question too. I, I think there's a lot going on. I think um, the whole COVID that has people uh, locked at home uh, allows people to pay attention to what's going on in the country, number one. Uh, secondly, these young people, these young adults, most of the protesters are young adults and these young adults um, uh, are passionate about what they see happening in our country and uh, the, the technology, you know, the, the advent of the iPhone allows the world to see things that have been going on for a long time that haven't been uh, seen. But uh, having iPhones and uh, all kinds of uh, smartphones allows uh, the nation to see some of the practices and some of the things that have been spoken about for decades in our community, in the African-American community, we talk about these things all the time. And, uh, but to be able to actually see it really does something significant. The other thing I wanna say, Dr. Kim, that I think is um, profound and powerful is that the protests are not just African-Americans, it's people from all cultures. And that's a significant deal. The number of Anglo young people, young adults that are down participating in the, uh, the peaceful protests are significant. And it makes it a very, very significant event in the history of our country. What about the people in your own congregation? How have they been responding? Well, you know, we have not, has probably most of these events, we didn't organize anything, but lots of our people went down my, I have six kids and uh, some of my kids participated in it. It just seemed to be so spontaneous. Uh, and they wanted to be a part of what is turning out to be a very historic moment. In this moment, um, what do you think the black church has to offer and teach the larger body of Christ? Wow, man, there's so many things that I could talk about that uh, are practices in the African-American church that are significant. Um, you know, uh, the African-American church has a culture of honor for leadership that I think is significant. They, uh, the African-American church honors leadership. We, we don't, you know, we're not second guessing critical, overly critical or untrusting of leadership is a significant lesson. Uh, we've overcome a lot of challenges in our history and we've stayed the course and uh, we've uh, held fast. Historically, uh, the African-American church has been the, uh, the, the place where um, uh, the protests were organized, and even though that's not the case now, but certainly uh, uh, young people who are often involved in getting their values shaped by the African-American church uh, have been influenced by the lessons that they've learned historically that, that they didn't get it in their history books, they didn't get it at school, mm -hmm. they learned it from uh, their parents and from uh, the messages that they heard preached in the church. So I, I think um, the larger culture uh, can, can stand to learn some significant lessons that I'm just briefly hitting on today mm -hmm. that would be, uh, I think, important for the larger con context of the body of Christ to engage in. Mm -hmm. So you've uh, talked a bit about the conversations that happen in the African-American church and, and you yourself are um, leading many of these kinds of conversations. Um, 
as an accomplished pastor, as a successful pastor, as someone who's seen a thriving ministry, what has been your own experience as a black man in America? That's a wow. potentially painful question. Yeah. Yeah, I can talk to you uh, about that for you know rest of this conversation. Let me just tell you a few experiences um, that I've had both outside of the church and inside of the church. Um, I remember uh, one Sunday leaving my home and uh, headed uh, early one Sunday morning, headed to church in my church attire. And the moment I pulled out of the community where I live, I was immediately pulled over uh, by a white police officer. And uh, uh, I wasn't speeding, hadn't done anything wrong, wasn't wrong with my car, nothing wrong with my car. I don't know why he pulled me over. But what the surprise and shock for me was that he came to the window of my car with his gun pulled and aimed at my head. And I've told this story many, many times. And when I rolled the window down, I asked him, what did I do to you to make you feel the need to pull out your gun and aim it at my head? Uh, but that's, that was, you know, that was a shock to me that uh, just because I pulled out of a community that in his mind, he probably felt that I did not belong in, uh, not knowing that I lived in that community, uh, caused him to approach me. And, and what it was a shock, I was in a suit. I was, it's Sunday morning. It's seven o'clock in the morning on Sunday. I, I'm shocked at that. And then, you know, I've, I've had, I, I've worked in the gov federal government before I was a full-time pastor. I worked in the federal government and uh, in several offices that I worked in, I was the first African American to work in those offices. And I'm trying to say to myself, in all of this time, am I the first, I, I know I'm not the first qualified person to be capable of uh, performing this duty. Uh, but the, the, uh, the prejudice or the reluctance to hire African-Americans had played a role in that organization for so long that I ended up being the first black person in many jobs that I had. I had multiple jobs while I worked there. In several jobs, I was the first black person to work there. So, and then uh, even in, the, in additional secular fields, as well as in the church, I've gone to conferences that, uh, you know, some of these uh, Christian leaders didn't know who I was or what church I pastored or anything about me. But if I were to seek to speak to them, they wouldn't even give me the time of day. They wouldn't even acknowledge my greetings to them. And it's it's painful, but it's something that you learn to live with as an African-American in America. You learn that this is what goes on. And uh, so I'm no longer surprised or shocked at it. It's just a part of the journey. Mm. These are very difficult conversations to have, very difficult stories to hear, but important stories that we need to hear. And again, we seem to be at a moment that... Um, as a nation, we're ready to hear, perhaps in ways not previously experienced, ready to hear some of these stories and, and thoughts and experiences. So, you know, what would you say then, uh, more broadly, what would you want to say to white Christians, uh, Christians of other races and ethnicities, uh, about the Black experience in America? What is important for us to make sure we walk away knowing? Yeah, I, I think it's important for... Uh, for it to be known that, you know, Black and African Americans are not a monolithic culture and society. Everybody's not the same. Everybody doesn't think the same. Everybody doesn't act the same. Mm -hmm. 
Don't put all black people in the same, uh, don't view them that, that we operate, you know, everybody operates the same. And black people have the same dreams and hopes and aspirations for themselves and for their families as they have. And uh, they want to be treated the same way, you know, everybody else is treated. We want the same honor, respect, opportunities. Uh, we just want to be given a chance. And uh, I would say uh, to the rest of America and those who are not African-Americans, uh, I would just challenge them to give African-Americans an opportunity. You talk about opportunity, and there is a narrative, a uh, very strong narrative in American identity that, uh, listen, if you work hard, you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, you just need to do the hard work, and there's truth to that at some level, of course. Uh, but your own experience is much more complicated. Uh, you, you talked about being the first uh, in many of these sectors of work and uh, not first to be qualified, but the first to actually achieve that opportunity. So how do you respond to this narrative that if you just do the hard work, whether um, you know, African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, white, I mean, there's equal opportunity out there. I think it's important that uh, people understand and know that um, uh, when African-Americans are given an opportunity, uh, they're often not starting off at the same place as their counterparts are. Um, their counterparts had a running start, or they had, uh, if it's a hundred yard dash, they started at the fifty yard line, and we're at the we're at this we're at the beginning of the race. And you tell us both to run. Well, there's no way that I'm gonna catch them up, catch up, and they've they're already at the fifty yard line. They're starting there with those advantages, with those privileges, those. Uh, things that they get an opportunity to have that advantage that don't come our way. So, uh, and then, you know, they say, pull yourself up by the bootstrap. Sometimes we don't have the straps or the boots. Mm. Uh, you know, my, my parents uh, did not get certain opportunities that, given to them. Uh, therefore, it affects me. It affects what opportunities I've had. Uh, there are certain jobs they couldn't get, they couldn't apply for, they couldn't do, certain colleges they, should, they couldn't go to. And so that impacted what opportunities I had for me. So, uh, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps is uh, uh, a phrase that sounds great, but the bottom line is we often don't have the straps nor the boots mm. uh, to be able to do that. That's uh, very, very powerful imagery. So where do we go from here? You know, what, what do you think is needed for the church in our country to right these wrongs? I, I wish that uh, Anglo churches would do what I did with my church, which was I decided that I wanted our church to engage with people that didn't look like them. And we joined a primarily Anglo organization. And that was because I wanted to cultivate relationships, both myself and our congregation with people that don't look like us. What I don't see a lot of is uh, majority culture engaging relationally with minorities. Um, and I know that um, uh, it's done in a missional way uh, where, you know, you're going to go and be a missionary to a poor culture and society. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about developing meaningful relationships with 
people and individuals. And, and in our community here, we've tried on a number of occasions to get uh, that going, to try to get uh, cultures uh, building relationships, but it's always, it has always been a difficult task. For, for whatever reason, uh, many Anglo churches and people are not comfortable uh, cultivating those kinds of relationships with minority communities. Mm -hmm. That would be an amazing first step. So you, uh, you work a lot with mentoring uh, pastors, other pastors, white, black pastors, both. I mean, what kind of conversations are you having with them right now? What should pastors be doing during this time? Well, you know, I have been called and interviewed with I, a ton. I mean, it seems like I'm all, I'm all zoomed out, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, meeting with uh, a lot of pastors, Anglo pastors, and uh, doing interviews and doing meetings with groups and leaders. One one church uh, sent a crew from Arizona to come and interview me, uh, and all of that. And all of that is great and fine. And uh, I think we need to continue the dialogue, continue the conversations. The pastors that I cover, this is a daily conversations between our talking, our text messaging. We are watching videos. We are seeking to understand. And, and I think for our country, uh, Dr. Kim, that's a great deal. I think it's a great thing for us to have those conversations and begin to talk about these matters I think is very, very important. And it is my prayer that we don't stop, that we don't let the, the moment pass by and go back to church and life as usual. It's my prayer that we will continue to engage with each other and seek to understand. So many of these Anglo pastors that I just take my hat off to are, are, are seeking to understand. They're trying to get a, a comprehension of what, uh, what it's like to live as a minority in this country. And I I, I salute them. And it's not just African-Americans, Dr. Kim. I know you know this. It's all cultures of minorities and what they experience and what's said and things that are, are done. So I just think we need to continue in that vein and continue to get to engage with each other. I th the relationships is the thing that I think is very, very important. Hmm. What gives you hope? What gives you hope in these challenging days? Yeah, I was asked that question recently and I... Um, and I almost couldn't answer it. I broke down in tears. What gives me hope? I wish I could say that it was the church. And that's probably what made me cry. It makes me think about it even today, that the church has been absent and vacant. The church has been silent and quiet. The church has been unseen. And it has it is brought tears to my eyes. But my hope, if I can be honest with you, my hope today is in these young people, these young adults who have grabbed a hold of the vision of unity. They've grabbed a hold of what Dr. Martin Luther King said, that there will come today when black children and white children will sit together and play together. They've grabbed a hold of it and they're actually doing it. They don't have the prejudices and the racism and the hesitations that their parents and grandparents had. They don't walk with that. My hope is, and my, my, my joy, my excitement is to see how they are walking, walking it out. And they're marching together and protesting together and crying together and praying together. They're walking it out unlike their parents and grandparents. That's, that's actually where I get excited. But I wish I could say it was the Church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, uh, it hasn't happened. 
That is a piercing prophetic word. Do you have a final pastoral word for the body of Christ in this moment? It's not too late, church. It's not too late for us seniors, us older people, us who know better, who know the teaching of the word of God, who know the scriptures, who have experienced life and went through the journey of challenges and problems, it's not too late for us to cross over and model for the young people what we should have been modeling all this time. And it is my prayer that the word of God would grab a hold of our hearts and bring us together and bring healing to our nation so much so. We're becoming so much of a divided nation. And it is my prayer that we will move beyond that and be united and move forward to the glory of Jesus Christ. Mm. I know I and many others are going to be joining you in that prayer. Our guest on today's conversation has been Pastor John Jenkins, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Glen Arden. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, a very special thanks to you, Pastor John. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.